The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, we dive into the origins and enduring popularity of that most classic of Christmas carols, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. Plus, Steven Spielberg has officially apologized to sharks for Jaws. And a note on our holiday programming. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. How kids pick up certain jokes and games seemingly across geographic boundaries and sometimes generations even before the age of the internet is a mysterious phenomenon. And it's one that certain scholars have studied as far back as the late 1800s with William Wells Newell's Games and Songs of American Children. How, for example, have so many kids for generations learned how to draw that cool S You know, the one where you draw six lines and then connect them to make a kind of graffiti-looking S shape? If you know what I'm talking about, where did you learn to do that? And where did whoever may have taught you learn it? It's one of many pieces of childhood culture that endure, and which adults, looking back, can't figure out how it spread or where it originally came from. Maybe I'll dive more into the S another day, but today I want to talk about another piece of kids' culture with shrouded origins. Being that we are a few days away from Christmas and that this will be our first Christmas sadly spent without Kevin Conroy, let's discuss that best of all Christmas carols, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells. You know, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin Laid an Egg, The Batmobile Lost a Wheel, and The Joker Got Away. Or, if you're like me, you grew up hearing The Joker Does Ballet as the last line instead. There are actually a lot of different variations that got made up over the years and around the world. Tom Scott did a fascinating analysis on this a couple of years ago that I'll touch more on in a moment. But first, how and when did this song get its start? Depending on your age, you might think there's a simple answer for the origin and spread of this classic parody song, the Batman animated series on which Conroy starred. In the 1992 episode Christmas with the Joker, we see Mark Hamill's Joker recite the well-known first verse of the song, along with a custom second verse written for the show, describing his actions of escaping through the roof on a Christmas tree. But that was not the origin of the song, just a clever callback. For one, the song had appeared on another TV show three years prior, on the very first episode of The Simpsons. Bart sings the Batman Smells verse during a school Christmas pageant and is subsequently kicked out. But that, too, was just a callback, albeit a callback that might have cemented one version of the song over all others. The origin of the song generally goes back way further than that 1989 debut of The Simpsons. 
When blogger Rob Weir, also motivated by the mystery of kids' jokes and games that persevere through the generations, decided to look into the origins of Jingle Bell's Batman Smells back in 2006, he asked his readers to leave comments about when they first heard the song. And the earliest response that he got was someone going by the name Sonny D, who claimed to have heard the song at their San Diego elementary school in 1966 mere months after the debut of the new live-action Batman TV series. Could the song have really taken off so quickly after the show's debut? And even if it did, how did it spread from there? Was San Diego the actual origin point? Ten years after Weir's blog post, Robert Evans, writing for Cracked, stumbled on that post while investigating the question himself. He ended up teaming up with Weir, and the two uncovered some newspaper clippings that lent credence to some decent theories. Now, most significantly, in my opinion, they found an article from a 1967 edition of the Lawton Constitution discussing Christmas traditions for a military family overseas in Belgium. The article reads, quote, American kiddos in Europe aren't completely divorced of the U.S. gimmicked tunes. Lil' Jana Montgomery, daughter of Major and Mrs. Ross D. Montgomery, warbled this tune during the holidays. Jingle bells, Batman smells, Robin rang away, Batmobile lost a wheel, and commissioners stuck in sleigh. End quote. Now, the lyrics are quite different there, but if the song was new, it's possible the exact lyrics hadn't been settled on yet, and also possible that the grown-up writer of this article transcribed a different version than what the kids had been singing. But this military-family connection is important. If the song really did originate in the U.S., which is likely, or in California specifically, why not, how is it that kids as far away as Europe and Australia also learned it? That commenter on Weir's blog from 2006, Sonny D, floated the idea of kids in military families, which this article from 1967 seems to back up. And as Evans points out in Cracked in 2016, the U.S. military was nearly twice as large during the Vietnam War era as it is now. American kids were spread out at bases all around the world, and as that commenter reports, about half of the kids at their elementary school in San Diego were from military families, because San Diego was a big military hub at the time, with every branch of the services being active there. So maybe it really did originate in San Diego, or at least got its global spread from that beginning point. But why did it spread? Why was this parody rhyme and all its different incarnations so popular? That comes down to two things. First, the incredible popularity of Batman at the time. And second, Jingle Bells' former life as parody fodder. Quoting CBR, It's difficult to comprehend just how the Batman TV series captured the attention and the imaginations of viewers. On January 12th, 1966, 52% of American televisions were tuned in to ABC to catch the show's premiere, owing much to the network's marketing blitzkrieg, which included press mailings, hourly promo spots, and skywriting above the Rose Bowl game proclaiming, Batman is coming. 
Within months, if not weeks, Batman and Robin merchandise was flooding stores, with early estimates placing retail sales at $80 million for the year, about $597 million in today's dollars, eclipsing other pop culture megastars of the era, including James Bond. The phenomenon was short-lived, alas, with Batman's cancellation arriving just two years later, but it was unbelievably intense while it lasted. End quote. So, whether you watched Batman or not, and about half of American households did, you were aware of Batman. There are a few more newspaper articles that Weir and Evans, as well as Kevin Melrose at CBR, dug up, which simply reference the phrase, Batman smells. Melrose makes the case that there's either some mystery origin about Batman smelling that has been lost to time, or it's a reference to one article that made heavy use of aromatic metaphors for some reason, because following that we get a string of other headlines from around the U.S. that include the words, Batman smells. But I would say it's also possible that this song was already being sung on playgrounds by the time those articles were written, and the editors picked those headlines knowing that any parents would recognize the joke from their kids. But whichever came first, the chicken or Robin's egg, it makes sense to me that kids would eventually start saying, Batman smells. Like, yes, most kids loved Batman, so it seems a little strange that this song would begin by disparaging their hero, But kids are also both antagonistic and super gross. In terms of being antagonistic, kids like to make fun of popular things. You know, think about the parody of the Barney theme song, I love you, you hate me, let's hang Barney in a tree. There's a whole docuseries that came out about that similar song parody phenomenon earlier this year. Link in the show notes. I haven't watched it yet, so use caution. And I remember being about seven years old when kids decided Power Rangers weren't cool anymore, and anyone who watched them was a loser baby. So if there were some kids obsessed with Batman, there were other kids saying it wasn't cool to like something so much. Batman smells, dude. And then there's the kids being gross side of things. CBR references the world history resource Children and Youth in History, which refers to Batman Smells as an example of gross lore, which is the kind of content that, quote, allows children to pursue the curiosity they have about their own bodies, end quote. Think about how funny kids think poop is, or yet another mysterious playground song like Great Green Gobs of Greasy Grimy Gopher Guts. It doesn't matter if you were one of the biggest Batman fans in your whole school, singing about Batman smelling was funny. There's even a second verse that I had completely forgotten about until reading it again today. Batman's in the kitchen, Robin's in the hall, Joker's in the bathroom, peeing on the wall. It's gross-out humor, or as children and youth in history call it, fart lore. But while every version of this song included Batman smelling, the rest of the lines varied heavily over time and around the world. In the summer of 2020, YouTube creator Tom Scott surveyed over 64,000 people around the world on the version of the lyrics they remembered from growing up. He discovered a few pretty obscure versions that differ wildly from the original, but which were also reported by a few dozen people from countries all over the world. Scott asked people to report where they lived as children when they may have first heard the song as opposed to where they live now. And the fact that these very detailed, obscure versions were similarly reported by people in many different countries gives a bit of credence to the military brat theory of spread. 
But for more broad interpretations, in the United Kingdom, New Zealand, and other parts of Europe, there are endless variations for the second half of the first verse, all of which mention a family member or popular character losing a body part on the motorway. For example, Uncle Billy lost his willy on the motorway, or Auntie Ruby lost her booby. Scott shares a dozen variations with rhyming names and body parts, and those versions also sometimes include the names of motorways specific to different regions. Now, over in Australia, kids brought in another DC character singing, Wonder Woman Lost Her Bosom Flying TAA. To translate to American, that would be like saying she lost her bosom flying Pan Am. Now, this whole non-Batman character losing a funny body part while in transit variation never showed up in the United States at all. Regardless of how the second half of the first verse went over in the UK, Scott shares that the version he grew up with, and which many people outside of the US are most familiar with, says that for the second line, Robin flew away instead of laying an egg. How that first began, we're not sure, but Scott does have a theory for how the laying an egg version became more popular worldwide for a while. The Simpsons. In addition to that first episode in which Bart sings the song, it would be sung again in two subsequent episodes in 1992 and 1993, all of them using the Robin laid an egg version. Scott was able to show from his data that while the U.S. version of the song, Laying an Egg, stayed consistent over the decades, in the United Kingdom, there was a significant change from Flew Away to Laid an Egg during the 1990s. Conclusive? No. Fascinating? Absolutely. Scott's analysis is also just an interesting broader reflection on how American culture is sometimes more homogenous than British culture, even for how much bigger and spread out we are. Like, yes, we do have more accents and regionalisms than we are often given credit for, but especially when you break it down to specific examples where the U.S. might have two to five different versions of a term, like pop versus soda versus coke, the U.K. might have 10 or more. Scott shows how about 98% of American and Canadian respondents refer to that chasing playground game as tag, while in the U.K., they have upwards of eight different names for the same game. It's an interesting thing to think about, how Americans can sometimes, by and large, just stick to the same thing. Speaking of which, there is one last thing I mentioned but haven't covered. Why Jingle Bells? Why not the Batman theme song or some other tune? Well, about a century after Jingle Bells first debuted in the mid-19th century, not as a Christmas song but just a general song to herald in the start of winter or possibly Thanksgiving, it began being used as the melody for any sort of funny song, from playgrounds to protest marches. Like Yankee Doodle in early America before it, Jingle Bells was simply a common tune that most people knew, which made it infinitely changeable. Unfortunately, as Evan points out in Cracked, in the 50s and 60s, it was frequently used in bigoted and graphic ways. But sometimes it was still more innocent. And regardless, kids in the mid-60s would have been accustomed to hearing all kinds of parodies put to the tune of Jingle Bells, which helps fill in the final gap of how kids leapt from enjoying this wildly popular show to making a gross Jingle Bells parody of it. If they were going to make any parody song, that was the tune du jour to use. 
The exact lyrics wouldn't really solidify until those early 90s Simpsons episodes and DC giving the song its stamp of approval in 1992 with Batman the Animated Series, but the spirit of the song seems to have gotten started on the playgrounds of California in 1966. Maybe. Who really knows? Like the caped crusader himself, the shadowy details of the song may forever be shrouded in mystery. But hopefully, it's one that continues to endure on playgrounds around the world. You know, all these movie Batmans these days can try to take themselves as seriously as they want, but they'll never escape the one truth that all kids know. Batman smells. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. In other pop culture news, Steven Spielberg said that he'd like to apologize for making everyone scared of sharks. Now, I've mentioned this before, but anytime there's a spate of shark attacks, experts have to come out and explain the actually low probability of being attacked by a shark and reiterate the true nature of most sharks. Some of them will even name-check Jaws and bemoan how the 1975 blockbuster gave sharks a bad name, making people think all sharks are solely focused on attacking humans. Due to this perception, research has shown over the years that there was an increase in the killing of sharks after Jaws came out, contributing to the decimation of the shark population. Which Spielberg, in an appearance on an episode of BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs recently, does attribute to the book and movie, and says, quote, I really, truly regret that. That's one of the things I still fear. Not to get eaten by a shark, but that sharks are somehow mad at me for the feeding frenzy of crazy sports fishermen that happened after 1975. End quote. In referring to the book, BuzzFeed News points out that the book's author, Peter Benchley, also publicly spoke about his regret for the harm his story caused to the shark population before his death in 2006. He said in an interview with the London Daily Express, quote, "...knowing what I know now, I could never write that book today. Sharks don't target human beings, and they certainly don't hold grudges." End quote. And quoting more from BuzzFeed News, Brianna Lebusque and Carla Litchfield, researchers at the University of South Australia, analyzed the depiction of sharks in over 100 films released between 1958 and 2019. In a report published in 2021, Busque found that Pixar's Finding Dory was the only movie of the 109 studied that didn't depict sharks as a threat to humans. 
What we found is that it was really consistent to how the news media portrays sharks. All of the films, apart from one, had sharks that were scary, that were biting people, or people fearing sharks. That was the really prominent thing, that sharks were scary, LeBusk told Manga Bay, a U.S.-based science outlet. The Florida Museum of Natural History's database examined 137 reported interactions between sharks and humans that happened in 2021, and it found that most attacks happened in a shark's natural habitat. A 2013 Pew study estimated that about 100 million sharks were killed each year in commercial fisheries, end quote. Given how much scientists have been frustrated by Jaws and other portrayals over the years, this confession from Spielberg is probably both welcome and seen as a little bit too little too late. I haven't listened to Spielberg's entire Desert Island Discs episode yet, but I will say, if you've never listened to the show before, it is excellent. It's been airing since 1942 and invites prominent public figures on to share the eight songs, one book, and one luxury item that they would take with them on a desert island. And given its long tenure, you can find episodes from tons of different people you may be interested in hearing such a personal opinion from, like Judy Dench, Alfred Hitchcock, David Attenborough, David Tennant, and even Princess Margaret, an appearance which was recreated on the latest season of The Crown. Link to listen is in the show notes. Well, as it is Christmas this weekend, I will be celebrating and taking Friday and Monday off for the holiday, so I'll be back in your feeds on Tuesday, the 27th. Until then, I hope you all have a good Christmas, end of Hanukkah, continuation of Kwanzaa or Yule or whatever it is you may celebrate, or that, you know, you just have a nice weekend. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Tuesday. My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once, with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas.